You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. This episode is sponsored in part by Hashtag Lube Life. Hashtag Lube Life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their USDA-certified organic facility and are available in water-based, silicone, flavored, and more. To buy through Amazon, go to lubelife.com. They're already super affordable, but now you can get 20% off by using our Sluts and Scholars promo code 20SCHOLARS, 20SCHOLARS. If you lube it, they will come. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a sexologist and marriage and family therapist. And I'm Simone, and I am a law student and kind of a slut. This week, we are joined by Wednesday Martin, PhD. Dr. Martin is a feminist cultural critic, critic and a number one New York Times bestselling author. Her writing, for female se- her writing on female sexuality, gender, and popular culture has appeared in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Psychology Today, Time, CNN, and Cosmo, among others. She's a frequent mm-hmm. guest on national TV and on radio shows. She's lectured at Yale, Columbia, NYU, UT Austin, SCU, and more. She has a new book called Untrue, and it's a reconsideration of female infidelity and the misrepresentation of female sexuality in science and pop culture, something that we obviously love to talk about. (laughs) It's been described by critics as an indispensable work of popular psychology and sociology. Uh, Untrue was named one of the best books of 2018. The Atlantic lauded it as revolutionary. It's being translated into bajillion languages. Um, (laughs) You might be familiar with Wednesday's previous book, The Prime of Park Avenue because it ignited passionate debate about marriage, moray, and motherhood, and it's currently in development as a scripted series at Lionsgate. Fuck yeah, she earned her doctorate from (laughs) Yale and lives in New York City with her husband and their two sons. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Hi, that was the bios just like I know I say this every time, but they always just get more and more impressive. Like, it's incredible. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Martin. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here to talk to you. I love about, calling people by titles. I love yeah, it. we like, we appreciate it because we worked for it. Fuck yeah, years. <laughs> I'm so excited about Untrue. Um, and one of the things that I was reading, you know, in, in, in doing our research for this uh, was mm. just about how Basically, being a slut was like biologically advantageous for us as <laughs> as uh, humans to survive. And so, I'm just curious, like, how was yeah. it advantageous to like have multiple partners at one? Yeah, point? that that's one of the kind of fresh takes in the science that was fun to write about and learn about when I was researching on true. Um, that there is a view now in anthropology um, and primatology, which are two of the social sciences that I've been using for a long time to try to sort of decode women's lives in new ways. That at one point in our evolutionary prehistory, under pretty specific but not uncommon ecological circumstances, it was probably very advantageous um, for early human females or female hominins to be what we might deem promiscuous. And the newer science gets into all the reasons um, it could have been a really smart social and sexual strategy and a really great adaptation for females to breed promiscuously. So on the one hand, if a female was breeding promiscuously, um, she could get a really great sort of sampling of sperm, right? And to make sure that she got the healthiest sperm and that she wasn't just having sex with one male who, you know, what if you just have sex with one male and he's um, infertile or he has really low sperm motility, then you've kind of like put all your eggs in one sperm basket and, you know, that that might, maybe that won't work out. It might work out if you get a sampling of sperm, right? And then let your cervix 
choose the good stuff for you. Um, yeah, you also strong swimmers yeah. to the front. Yeah, exactly. Get in front, guys. Get and then yourself so what, a Ryan Lochte, said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the advantages was that you could get higher, a female could um, up her chances of having higher quality sperm. Now, when she did that, she also upped her chances of something called heterozygosity. Heterozygosity is that great mix where you're genetically dissimilar enough to, uh, from your partner that you will have a really robust pregnancy and offspring because you're not too closely matched genetically. So heterozygosity obviously is really important. If you're just having sex with one male, you know, what if you've made the wrong choice? So what if he's mating, your cousin? Well, yeah, you wouldn't want that because your offspring would tend not to be as robust. Is yeah, thinking. unless you do so want it, that, I guess. So here we have better sperm quality. We're upping the um, the heterozygosity odds. And then the other thing is that in many species uh, where there's concealed ovulation, a female having sex with multiple males, she's kind of spreading it around a little. And she, what she's spreading around is paternal certainty. And multiple males will think, well, you know, I did have sex with that female. There's like a good enough chance that that might be my offspring. That So I should I protect think, it and protect yeah, her. Well, I'm going to provision her. And then maybe I'm even going to protect and provision the offspring a little bit. And so that enables the female um, to, you know, chill out a little bit more during her pregnancy, be supported. And then once the offspring comes along to have a network of support and even protection and provisioning for her offspring. Okay, to make a long story short, we can see that female promiscuity was probably very adaptive in not a few circumstances. And it's only recently that we've changed things up and said, oh gosh, all those behaviors that were so adaptive for so long, we've decided those are wrong now. Uh, women's bodies and minds um, are in fundamental ways still trying to catch up with these newly legislated rules about our sexuality. And yeah, we have not caught up because we still have those <laughs> desires. <laughs> yeah, we do have those desires. And, you know, I like to always say we evolved as really very flexible social and sexual strategists. That's the reason the human species is here, right? We could say, okay, well, I'm going to be monogamous so that a guy doesn't kill me. I'm going to be polyandrous because it's acceptable and like it makes it easier living in this rough terrain if um, women are married to two men. That's kind of a sideshow, but in Tibet, there are all kinds of um, like ecological reasons that women might be polyandrous. To make a long story short, we are really super adaptive. We can, our sexuality can be different in different circumstances. Um, but all that said, um, I do believe I am really compelled by and convinced by the more recent, you know, couple, last couple decades of science about female promiscuity having been a really adaptive sexual strategy and a really important selection pressure in human evolution. So slut shaming, just really off the evolutionary script in a lot of ways. Yeah, so slut shaming is like biological shaming. <laughs> you know, I like to say that female sexuality happens at the confluence of the clitoris and the culture. Um, it happens Ooh. if you're female bodied um, or it happens really at the at the intersection of of culture and biology. So, you know, it's not that we're specifically programmed in any way. We can be really adaptive. It's just that to say that men are naturally more promiscuous than women doesn't sit with any of the science or data that we've been gathering for the last the couple of decades. <laughs> is, the, is, yeah. hetero, is heterozygosity the thing that describes why um, there are certain people who we just like don't like the natural taste of their mouth or of their genitals? See, some people um, think that. Some people who study olfaction, for example— you might have heard about some t these things called the T-shirt studies. Are you guys familiar with that? Or maybe Where you like smell are. someone's T-shirt and see if you like them? Yeah, and then you rate it. They had women um, smell these t They had different guys wear these T-shirts, and the guys didn't wear any deodorant or cologne or anything like mm. that. And they wore them for a few days, and then they collected all the T-shirts. Whenever I think of them actually executing these experiments, I just— a lot of times I laugh a lot, just somebody in their office 
at a university with a bunch of dirty t-shirts in the office, <laughs> right? And they had to seal them because they had to open them up so the women could take a deep whiff of the t-shirt and rate it as, you know, very sexy, kind of sexy, neutral, not sexy at all, or disgusting. I'm I'm making it up that those were the measures, but it was something like Highly that. Highly scientific. Right. And then what they discovered is that women were rating as super sexy and irresistible the T-shirts that had been worn by men with whom they had some really happening, lit heterozygosity. So the women were choosing um, the T-shirts of the men with whom they would be a good genetic match. In other words, enough of a genetic mismatch that they would yes. have robust offspring. Okay, now this is all very kind of heteronormative in its focus um, is one of the issues. And we need more studies um, about how, you know, lesbians and gay men might use olfaction in attraction. Um, mm. But the other thing to bear in mind is they did a follow-up study or a study based on this study of women who were heterosexual women who are on birth control pills. And it messes it up. And it messes it up. Um, we were told by the scientists, they said that, you know, the women who were on birth control had a really compromised ability to sniff out the T-shirts of the people who would be a really great match for them. So that's yeah, something... My- my professor said about. that it's important to like um, go off your birth control to, to, before you decide if you want to marry somebody. <laughs> Interesting. You know, huh. there are scientists who believe that and who give really, you know, there are scientists who believe let's take this data and let's use it to help people make decisions. So I, I think it's great that your professor said that. <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. I love, I, I, like olfaction is huge for me. That's just a fancy word for smelling. But yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I think it's all messed up now because we have so many things that changed it from birth control to cologne. That I'm not like, on birth control, and I fucking hate when people wear perfume. I'm a, <laughs> I'm like a, I am a um I'm just it's like the caveman, but not the caveman diet. It's like the caveman like Tinder. You like it. Caveman, caveman Tinder, Tinder yeah. just old-fashioned. We should have old-fashioned I'm an old-fashioned kind of girl, you know? Yeah, maybe we should have olfactory Tinder where people can, like, hook up oh, with people. Sense. Somehow, could we get smell in there? What could would, we do with that? That would be that. So that would be a great <laughs> experiment for my friend Leslie Boshall, um, who's a neurobiologist at Rockefeller University, and she studies olfaction And I interviewed her for Untrue about this. Now, something else interesting is that recently um, somebody, you know, Twitter is a great resource in a lot of ways. And somebody who is a, um, I believe, a sexologist um, contacted me on Twitter about, maybe he's a social psychologist, about trying to replicate some of these experiments. And he said that he had... um, tried to replicate these olfaction experiments and was unable to and was in the process of writing a paper about it. So I think we should, um, yes, pay attention to that space. Is there going to be some new data about how women might use their sense of smell and men too um, to partner up and to, and to, what does it have to do with attraction? Really interesting idea. Yeah. What I think is, so I want to talk about female infidelity. Yeah. That's like the whole premise of your book, obviously. It is. Um, But like, so the myth I think that most of us think is that men are sort of inherently designed to want to be promiscuous and to cheat on their partners and women. Or to be more sexual. Or even Mm -hmm. even to be more sexual, to have a higher sex drive. Yes. Thank you for saying that. And basically that's untrue. Yeah, it is. It is the view that we've been um, taught. Um, a lot of us still, I think, I think a lot of us are still taught that men are naturally somehow uh, such a problematic term, um, more sexually driven than women, um, that they have stronger libidos than women do, um, that uh, a lot of people say to me, oh, well, yeah, of course, like men are designed to be promiscuous and women are designed to be monogamous. So I I interviewed for this book, I did what I do for most of my books. I, I interviewed 
30 women, you know, to ask them about their firsthand experiences of their sexuality and of infidelity. And then I interviewed 31 experts. And I don't just look at people in one field, right? I'm a comparativist. So I interviewed some MDs and some primatologists. I interviewed some sex researchers, some clinical psychologists, some anthropologists. And then I reviewed um, a bunch of academic studies. And I also always do immersive research. I do field work. I do participant observation. So in this case, I went to some sex parties and went to some workshops and stuff like that. To make a long story <laughs> short, <laughs> to make a long story short, yeah. For research, this, like, you know. Yeah, fun research. I did it for research. But there, you know, there are a few sort of foundational presumptions about female sexuality that have been undone um, by scientists and social scientists over the last maybe decade and a half. And it's just that a lot of the science hasn't crossed over. But the there are basically five assumptions that have recently been undone. Um, the first is like the sacred cow of sex research that women's libidos are weaker than men's. Um, the second big foundational uh. assumption, yeah, we'll get to that. The second one is that women are somehow wired for monogamy um, because of their biology, because, you know, they they gestate and deliver the offspring. And often if they're mammals, they they lactate. Um, so a lot of people are really still married to this idea that women are wired for monogamy, but the science has pretty much disproven that. Um, that women cheat. I mean, that's not a term that I like a lot, but mm-hmm. that, that women and that females of other species are sort of, um, you know, being, um, uh, having extra pair involvements less than males or men are. That's another big belief that people have that um, sex researchers and other researchers have recently just torn down. Then, then there's this idea that women uh, always cheat for emotional connection, right? Like we want to believe that men <laughs> cheat for sex and women cheat to connect. I hear somebody giggling. She, she knows it's not always true. Simone the slut. Yeah. And then well, I'm just thinking being, how like emotionally connected I've been with certain partners and I'm like, I still want to have sex with other people. Right, exactly. And then I would say the fifth one is that the fifth big one is that like women who refuse monogamy um, must be unhappy in their primary relationships if they want to be in a primary relationship or they must somehow be unhappy with themselves if they don't want to be and can't be or aren't interested in being monogamous. So, you know, those are, I, I kind of call those the, the five false foundations of our belief system about female sexuality. And it was really fun to go through and kind of like look at the mostly female scientists who have knocked those all down, right? Because they had their work cut out for them. Especially, I would say, especially the the ones who went after this idea that women's libidos are weaker than men's, you know? That's like the big sacred cow in sex research. And Where did these false beliefs come from, though? Well, well, I... Control. Yeah. Control is one of them. And I think that another, um, another thing that happened here was we used to only measure one kind of desire, right? Um, sex researchers used to think there was one kind of desire and it was the kind of desire where you're just sitting there and then suddenly you think, wow, I'd like to have sex with somebody, right? The same way you think, wow, I'd like to have a milkshake. (laughs) And, That was the only way, that was the only kind of desire that scientists and social scientists and sexologists were measuring. Mm -hmm. And then this really cool woman, Marjorie, uh, sorry, Rosemary Bassan. Rosemary Bassan. Yeah, she came along and she, you know about her because you've studied this. So she Everyone look up Rosemary Bassan. (laughs) Yeah, B-A-S-S-O-N, Rosemary. She's Canadian, like so many cool female sex researchers who are shaking everything up. And she said, wait a second, I think there might be more than one kind of desire. Why don't we call what we've been measuring spontaneous desire? But let's look at these other things. Let's look at triggered or responsive desire, which is sort of, you're not thinking about sex and then I don't know, you see something sexy on YouTube or somebody gives you this really lustful glance on the street or you start to fool around and then suddenly you're interested in sex. Now, when we measure that, when we measure triggered or responsive desire, we see that men's and women's libidos are are a lot closer uh, than we thought they were in terms of um, strength and 
And so that was a really big intervention. And as Dr. Meredith Chivers said to me when she was at the STAR conference um, in 2017, and there was a whole brouhaha about uh, some mostly female sex researchers challenging the idea that men have stronger libidos than women do. And she said to me, you know, people have to consider it's not that men have stronger libidos, is that we're not measuring libido the right way. So that was a really cool intervention. Then Dr. Chivers herself um, had people come into her lab in 2014, I believe it was, and she had them look at pornography, um, straight men, straight women, um, gay men, lesbians, people who identified as bisexual. And what she, she showed them porn, you know, kind of sexy porn what what it must be really interesting what sex researchers and people in a lab think will be sexy to people yeah right that that would be a whole fun podcast in itself like talking to the sex researchers about how they Um, choose the porn if you want to connect us we're down i'm there would you please do that so she had them all anyway they look at pornography and the self-ratings of arousal for men and women were basically identical So, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is um, that hormones play a role. And when I interviewed Dr. Lisa Diamond, you know, she said a lot of the measures that say that women have much lower sex drives, they're measuring them at a very specific point in their menstrual cycle. But if we measured at a different point in a woman's menstrual cycle, we might see that she has a really, what we might consider a really strong sex drive maybe stronger than a man's. Um, so, th- But, you know, it's hard to describe That's just so ha- how, how upsetting people find it when you challenge that idea. I mean, I've done many interviews where things are going around really, going along really nicely and everybody's getting along. And then, you know, I talk about how women's sex drives are not weaker than men's. And there's like this screech like this tire screeching on a pavement moment (laughs) and people say but you're not saying that women's sex drives are as strong as men's and I say yes I am and then things aren't as things aren't as friendly anymore and do you get that response from like men and women equally um I mostly it's been from men but it's also been from women I would say that there is just a very ingrained notion, whether it's in sex research or other scientific fields adjacent to sex research that study human sexuality, people are still really, really, um, you know, very married to that idea. And they, there's a lot of resistance when you say that it's just untrue. I mean, if women, if women don't understand their own sexual desire and arousal patterns, like the circular model that Rosemary Basson puts out, then they may not know that they even have that desire. I think they like it's That's sort of right. like yeah, like in, at least in heterosexual relationships or couples that I've seen, but but in other types of relationships as well, it's usually like the person with the penis gets the spontaneous arousal, and they're like, "Here, I have a boner. It's a present. Like I'm ready. <laughs> let's and do then, something about this, shall yeah, we? Yeah, let's do something right. about this. And then the potentially other yeah, partner. With That's a vagina, right. like, declines. And so then they think, well, they're not interested in sex. But it's like, well, maybe they would have been if there was more time spent um, fostering and simmering and finding that other desire that she has. Sorry for the interruption, but pause this episode right meow and go use our discount code to get some new lube from hashtag lube life. It's already affordable and organic, but if you use the discount code 20SCHOLARS, you can have it for even cheaper. Hashtag Lube Life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their certified organic facility and are available in water-based, silicone, flavored, and more. I'm going to taste the watermelon flavor right now, actually. Ooh, it brings me right back to the days of lip smackers and bubblicious gum, except now it's even sexier. If you don't like flavor, they also have regular water-based, silicone, hybrids, and more. Remember to make sure you're using the right lube for your body, your toys, and your barriers. To buy hashtag LubeLife through Amazon, go to lubelife.com and use promo code 20SCHOLARS, 20-S-C-H-O-L-A-R-S. Stay wet and remember, lube is your best friend. Now, back to the episode. 
And also, if we just thought to measure other desire when it happens, which isn't always when the boner is offered, right? There's that desire is going on plenty of times, probably for women and probably for people who aren't their long-term partners, they're feeling it, um, which brings us to the next big lie, which is this idea that, you know, monogamy is easier for women and, and they're wired for it and men are naturally promiscuous and women are naturally monogamous. Boy, people are really resistant when you start to challenge that in, in a similar way to how resistant they are to the idea that men are just naturally more sexual and, and have stronger sex drives, people really um, tend to feel very challenged by the newer research that shows that actually um, long-term sexual exclusivity is much harder on female desire than it is on male desire. And people say that just can't be. So it's not just as hard, it's actually harder? It's actually harder. Um, we see mostly, again, this sex research has been about heterosexual dyads, unfortunately, although we do have um, some data, as I understand it, about lesbians and and I call it sexual boredom. Um, sex researchers call it um, low female desire in a long-term sexually exclusive relationship. I'm going way out on And I think what like was colloquially labeled as like lesbian bed death. Right, exactly. I'm going way out on a limb and I'm, I'm calling low female desire in a long-term exclusive relationship, female sexual boredom. Um, and we know from several studies, um, there was a Finnish study recently over a period of seven years and relationship duration and exclusivity uh, was predictive of low female desire, but not low male desire over the seven year period. There's a very famous um, couple of longitudinal studies done in Germany in 2002 and 2006 and in those studies, what happened was over the course of 90 months, the desire of the female participants, the sexual desire, started at the same level as male sexual desire with their long-term partners. But the women's desires plummeted between years one and three. And meanwhile, the desire of the men in the long-term exclusive relationship just ebbed in this really slow, easy way and stayed pretty steady over the 90-month period. Um, there have been numerous other studies that find the same thing um, in people of, you know, and controlling for age, um, controlling for whether they have kids or not, controlling for other, sorry, my cats are fighting in the background. Um, <laughs> the, there's, there's a pussy fight going on here. It could get interesting. <laughs> so uh, sorry, you guys. But when we control for all these other factors, what seems very clear is that what women are responding to is monogamy itself and living with somebody itself. And the very fact of long-term sexual exclusivity is what is dampening female desire. I don't know about you, but I was taught that women need intimacy and connection to feel sexy. Um, but, you know, as Marta Miana, the sex research has, a sex researcher um, has put it really succinctly. Um, she has said, you know, men are just, basically better at wanting the sex that they already have. And for women, it's more of a struggle. And Marta Miana kind of broke it down. And she said that it's the over-familiarity that can happen with the spouse that you're living with. Plus, yeah, like the Esther just, Perel approach of mating in mm -hmm. captivity. Well, yeah. And this was Marta's idea originally that Esther crossed over into the mainstream, which I think just helped countless people um, mm. to have this reframe, which was really important that Esther Perel did that. But it was Marta Miana's idea that being just domesticity itself dampens female desire in ways it doesn't male desire. Um, so does, she also said the second thing that's really hard for women is the institutionalization of roles that happens. You know, they're just like asked to be wife and mom and chief executive officer of the household or whatever. And they're like, that's not sexy. And it's hard to reconcile that with like sex goddess for women. Um, mm -hmm. And then back to this thing about the overfamiliarity um, of the spouse. You know, I like to say that, like not to generalize about the sexes, but if you want to understand this in a really basic way about heterosexuals, 
living with each other long term, like a guy can go into the bathroom and she left her dental gloss out or whatever or worse, right? <laughs> but and he can want to have sex with her in a little bit. Whereas for a woman, <laughs> that among other things about overfamiliarity with the spouse can really kill it for her. Mm-hmm. And so Marta Mana has studied this in great detail for a long time with women reporting uh, low desire. I think it's really significant that in those two German studies I mentioned, uh, what we see is that if women didn't live with their partners, their libidos, their desire for sex remained higher and closer uh, to that of their long-term male partners. Yeah. So sometimes I like to joke, I don't know, do you want to keep it fresh? Maybe like make him move out. I love that. But I do wonder, I also wonder if there's like a link to like this sort of the the way that like sex plays out in like a long term relationship um, and like how it relates to how people typically with vulvas achieve orgasm and like that orgasm isn't necessarily like the most important part of sex. It can also just be like sensation. Whereas I think for like people with penises a lot of the time it's like this is a thing that gets me to orgasm very quickly and the orgasm feels really good and so i don't know i wonder if that has yeah you're on it too. yeah i that's an you know that's an interesting question about whether in i don't know if any of these studies controlled for how creative if you will sex acts were how often um it was intercourse and how often it was something else but it would be great if somebody would go down and get even more specific about controlling for certain factors. Um, what? Yeah, that's a great question. And that would um, probably be a female sex researcher getting in there and, and, and prioritizing and sort of having those forms of empathy and compassion and curiosity to make it even more specific. That'll be great research when that comes out. I think that what's freaky to people right now is that there's, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic called Women, the Board Sex. And I spoke to, I was in touch with Marta Miana about it afterwards. And I said to her, you know, I sort of have a career of writing things that people think are controversial. And I said to her, I've never encountered more resistance to a single idea in my entire career than this idea that monogamy and long-term monogamy is harder on female desire than male desire. And she said to me, oh, I have so much to say about this. <laughs> so. well, yeah, because I honestly think that a lot of this stuff, ha- I mean, it has to do with control. It has to do with keeping patriarchy in place. It really does. And I th- even think it links back to like how we inculcate people with vulvas that like birth is super painful and like you're supposed to be monogamous because like if we knew our true fucking power and if we followed our true fucking desires, then we wouldn't just be these docile little, you know, s- people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I think you're really onto something there, which is that, Sometimes when I do a talk for a group of men and women together who are heterosexual, um, I say um, my goal for the men in this room is that by the time this is over, I want you to literally be bowing down uh, before the power of female sexuality and the clitoris. Um, because yes. they, and, the clitoris. And men, men find that often heterosexual men often find that like a fun, interesting, engaging challenge but you you know i'm always careful to frame it for men male-bodied and female-bodied people alike or people who identify as neither i'm always very um careful to frame this as an issue of understanding that female sexuality is very powerful um in ways that we haven't really accounted for or dealt with and you know if you watch our closest non-human relatives non-human female primates, you'll see as the primatologist Meredith Small did a couple of things. One is that the single most observable social characteristic of a non-human female primate is, according to her, um, is is the drive for sexual novelty. Um, Yeah, so we're not less sexual. We're just more prone to boredom. I think it's really hard in a in a monogamous, I guess, heterosexual relationship that we're talking here for someone to see and admit that their 
female identifying partner, it's not that maybe they don't want sex. They may just not want sex with them. <laughs> or that kind right. of sex with them. Or that, that, or that kind of, of sex. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I say that sometimes too, and then sometimes people get their feelings hurt, so I'm very careful. But I have often said it's not that she's gone off sex. It's that she's gone off sex with the same person in the same way for, I mean, it starts at as early as a year or earlier and, and, you know, usually sets in within the first three years. Whereas for um, men, it takes longer. And we have this data that it's seven years and even at nine years. And these, the nine year figure is um, uh, male bodied people between the ages of 18 and 25, still going strong for a long-term female partner in a, in a monogamous relationship at year nine. So there is a difference there. And yeah, I, sometimes the easiest way to say it is, uh, you know, you're not, not sexual anymore. It's that monogamy is hard for you. So, so many women, if they're heterosexual, they, and, and, you know, many lesbians have described this to me as well. They get with somebody, they're really happy. They move in together. And then with in years one to three, suddenly uh, that whole limerence phase, right? I like to call it sex insanity. Not only does that fade, but then the person says to, to herself, usually it's a female bodied person, will say, oh my God, I've turned into a cliche. My partner wants sex more than I do. Mm. I guess I don't like sex. And we really need to help these women understand it's not that you don't like sex. It is that you are a normal female-bodied person being a normal female-bodied person and struggling because you're not getting the variety and novelty and sexual adventure that you need. So what um, kind, what's the solution? Is yeah, it, I was going like, to say, what do we do? Do we like, just, you know, I mean, obviously <laughs> like dismantling institutions of like patriarchal maintenance like marriage, sure. But like, how do we actually encourage people to like, hmm. to, to yeah. overcome this? Well, clearly well, we go I out and just test this. all the different sperm, right? <laughs> <laughs> clearly. I love a sample platter. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know what? Seriously, I do think that what you guys are doing is so important. I mean, in social science, they call it psychoeducation, right? It's like a, basically you guys are part of um, an unfunded uh, public education campaign. And I'm so glad that you're doing it because I think every time I talk to a room full of women or get a DM from a woman who's read on true, I hear thank you so much. I thought there was something wrong with me. And when you re reframe for someone that, no, women are not naturally more monogamous. You're not supposed to be having an easier time with monogamy than the guy you're with. Um, when you reframe it like that, you really give people um, whatever, you know, their gender identification, you're really giving them permission mm -hmm. um, to not you know, feel misrep to not feel there's something wrong with them. So I think that what you do um, is really important. I think that if people just have this knowledge about um, women needing sexual variety and novelty and adventure, probably um, these recent studies are telling us more than men do. That'll take a lot of pressure off people. Um, you know, heterosexual males tend to feel really indicted um, if they think they're female partner is not into sex. But if we reframe this as she's just being a normal woman and and struggling because, you know, there's not enough variety and novelty and adventure at the moment as as she needs, that, you know, that's profoundly upsetting to people. But I think it's also very freeing. It's profoundly upsetting in that it sort of disturbs the master narrative that women are less sexual and more monogamous. But I think it's freeing because it gives people permission not to feel weird or that they're failing. And I think it also helps them understand, okay, this isn't a referendum on me, my partner, or my relationship. This data is saying that this is pretty normal. Okay, now what? Right. right? The but, first thing is to accept world, it. But Dr. Martin, in a world <laughs> where monogamy is put on such a pedestal and is, yeah. I mean, sure, we live in New York City where it seems like, you know, there's 
like polyamory is like super hot and like everyone's poly or whatever, which I think is mostly people just like trying to express that they don't want sexual monotony or like whatever. Or uh-huh. I, I don't know. I take that back maybe. I don't know. But like <sighs> we live in cities. We're part of this like sexual space where we're comfortable talking about sex and like even like t- that sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. okay, so the data's out there. The science is there. Like, monogamy is rough on everybody, especially rough on women. But, like, what do we do with that? Like, society yeah. that like society has not caught up, caught up to the science. So, like, aside right. from, you know, us doing this, yes, unfunded public education, what yeah. tools do people have to talk to their partners about this? Yeah. Like, does this frustration resolve with, like, just, like, role play or novel sexual activities? Or do you actually need a new partner? So what a great question. First of all, I just want to say I really love how you formulated this, that we're sort of living in the lag time between the data being there and being communicated to us and us understanding and sort of being set free by the data, right? Oh, thank you. So yeah, we're living in this lag time where the information is there, but it's not reaching people. You're helping people get the information. And then the next thing is, yes, now what? Because obviously... Some people really like monogamy. Um, They like certain parts of it or they like a lot of it. And they like that it's cozy. They like that it's a great arrangement for raising children. They like the companionship. Um, You know, we know that um, long-term partnership has numerous benefits um, for men. (laughs) The the science about how long-term partnership benefits women, um, their health profiles is a, a lot Uh, less easy to interpret as it being beneficial, but be that as it may, we know that a lot of people really value monogamy. And of course, we're not going to sit there and tell them the only solution is to step out, right? That you can do all these things. And I interviewed Lisa Diamond about it, the sex researcher. And one of the great things she said was, um, sure, there are things that people can do, but there wouldn't be hundreds of books about making monogamy hot if that were simple. (laughs) So (laughs) I think the first thing is to understand, like my friend Tammy Nelson, the sex, the sexologist who wrote The New Monogamy, and now she just wrote a new book called When You're the One Who Cheats, which is great. She compares monogamy to a practice like yoga, right? And she says, it's a practice, not a perfect. Yeah, it's a practice, not a perfect. And it is a practice that unfolds over time. And she likes to say, for people who decide, and this won't be everybody, for For the people who do decide that they want to be monogamous and deal with this problem um, of low female sexual desire or female sexual boredom within the framework of monogamy, she says, I think they have to redefine monogamy. And Tammy Nelson defines monogamy as a spectrum. And it can be everything from at one extreme, like you cannot look at pornography because that feels like a betrayal to me, right? At one end of the monogamy spectrum. To the I'm other not on end board the, with that type right, of Right, exactly. And then to the other end of the monogamy spectrum, which is, you know what? You can play with other people. You can have sex with other people as long as you understand I'm number one and this relationship takes priority. Now, between those two positions on the spectrum, there's a whole lot in between there. Um, yes. So, yes, some people will be so uncomfortable with the idea of, um, the woman in the relationship or it, uh, getting sexual variety and novelty and adventure by being with another person. For some people, that'll be tremendously exciting and a solution. And for other people, that'll be more like a problem. And we know, you know, when we look at there, there was a really interesting study you guys might have looked at uh, that Terry Connolly did um, with some other researchers on how attachment style predicts whether people will have an easier or hard time um, taking on an additional uh, adventuring, you know, within monogamy or outside of it with polyamory or open relationships or swinging or just hiring somebody to do something with. Uh, So we know something about who will do well with that and who won't. Um, But you know, there's a whole menu of options. I wouldn't want to say that there's any one right way. It's going to just vary a lot from woman to woman and couple to couple if they're in a couple. Yeah. I really, I don't know if Nicoletta, you wanted to say something, but just to follow up on that. I was going to say, I much prefer the like Dan Savage monogamish label. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people really like that. Yeah. And I think you brought something super interesting, especially right now, um, is like the idea of hiring someone else to do it. And like, 
especially now that like decriminalization of sex work really is kind of coming to the forefront of like legislation, um, right? Or not legislation, but like popular goals. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is really important because I think that's a wonderful way to handle feelings of sexual frustration without causing any sort of emotional threat. Yes, and a lot of people told me, I, to your point, um, some people, so, you know, some people are going to want to deal with this conundrum. The woman is going to say, oh, I thought I had gone off sex, but I have just gone off the same kind of sex with the same person. And then maybe these people will look at each other and say, huh, that's interesting information. Now what should we do? Okay, and some of them might say, well, let's have adventures. And some of them might say, let's do those adventures together. And others might say, let's have our adventures apart and then come back together to discuss them. Mm -hmm. Or let's have our adventures apart and agree never to discuss them, which, by the way, the research shows us that that tends to lead to higher levels of jealousy and lower levels of relationship satisfaction. But to your point about transactional sex and all the wonderful sex workers to whom we have to be so grateful for the really important work that they're doing. Yes, some couples have told me that that has been one of their solutions. And that, as you said, they say, this person is a professional. We don't have to go out and look into our friend network or feel weird about going on an app. Some people feel weird about that. So some people have, uh, that I interviewed, have told me that that has been a great solution for them um, to get the variety and novelty and adventure that they want and need but to stay within their relationship framework. And they consider that there's being monogamous. Some other people might call that consensually non-monogamous, even though it's a question of your angle. But yeah, I agree with you. We have to decriminalize sex work. It's it's ridiculous um, that it's that it's criminalized in this country. Oh, yes. I'm like so glad that you're including that in this, <laughs> oh in this conversation. Oh, yeah. Think of all the great work that sex researchers do. I mean, they help people get such fundamental things, touch, connection, sexual satisfaction. These are really important things. So, um, you know, it's very, they're very, you know, it's very different. We can say that we're very concerned about um, people who are in sex work against their wills or have been trafficked. We can say that. And really be concerned about that. And at the same time, really have a lot of respect and admiration um, for sex workers who this is a choice that they're making and and appreciate them a lot. Um, One thing that you mentioned, uh, like sex researchers, and something that you've alluded to a few times throughout our conversation has been that it's like the women who are doing this. And to me, I'm kind of seeing an obvious correlation between like, women being allowed to be scientists <laughs> and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this science coming out. And like, mm. yeah, is, is that talked about? Like, it, it just to me seems like so fucking obvious. I don't know. Yeah, like, I think what you're right. Funding and uh, yeah, I mean, it, I that's th- I think mm. it's the same thing for like any type of research that the uh, sexuality research, at least that like the penis is reigns supreme. And so it was like the, the the vulva, the vagina was like only researched when people realized like different capacities of the penis. Right. And, you know, to, what you're saying is really interesting. I always like to say, um, you know, male primatologists, a lot of when when female primatologists entered the field, we learned a lot more about the sexuality of non-human female primates because female primatologists were just like, oh, that's interesting. What are those females doing? What's the female um, bonobo's motivation here. If we viewed this through the lens of her behaviors and her strategies, and, and so mm-hmm. that why is she doing what she's doing rather than simply the female sits there or, you know, stands there and is copulated by the male, um, right? You can see how it would affect a shift in perspective just because these female scientists would bring, like I kind of alluded to before, just different forms of empathy and compassion and insight and curiosity. So it's not like feminists made primatology a feminist or brought feminism to primatology. It's that they improved the science by bringing mm-hmm. a new viewpoint that gave us a more complete picture of non-human primate sexuality. Okay, same deal with sex research, right? Like, it's not that these sex researchers were bad guys, 
but it's that when um, there was this, I like to say that like in Canada, women just invaded sex research. I mean, there are just so many amazing young female sex researchers in Canada who are mentored by women, you know, closer to my age and older than me. Um, But for sure, you know, science is going to be, there's an inflection point for science. And, and one of, one of the things that influences it is who, who are the people doing the science. So the more people of color we have in sex research, um, the more people who identify as queer and trans, the more we're going to be improving the science, right, to state the obvious by just making it not just more inclusive, the science will be more complete. It will be better science. And I think you're right that it took women moving into sex research for us to really start thinking about whether women were the way we had been taught they were. Well, Big we're really change. grateful that you're in this space. Um, Thank helping you. Aid it's been this a fun along. space to be in. This has been amazing. You are like such a wealth of knowledge that the whole time I'm like watching myself just like nodding, nodding, yep. nodding. Yeah, we're like on FaceTime like, yes, with each other because yes, yes. we're on opposite coasts and we're both just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh my so thank gosh. you so much. Thank you for having me on. I'm so glad we had this uh, like technologically enabled chat. And I'm so glad you guys are doing the work that you're doing. I think it's, to you know, I just want to thank you and tell you how important it is and how grateful I am that you had me on, but also how grateful I am that you're doing what you're doing and bringing this information to to individuals and to couples and throuples and quads and whoever you're bringing it to. Thank you. Oh, Dr. Uh, Martin, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Don't get verklempt. <laughs> I am so verklempt. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure all of our listeners are dying to follow you on social media. So how can oh, they find you and, and buy your book? Thank you. And buy your oh, that's book. great. Thank Books. you. So on yeah. Instagram, I'm at Wednesday Martin PhD. And on Twitter, I'm Wednesday Martin. And if people um, like my book, they can leave a review on Amazon. That's always um, really helpful. And I love hearing from people on Instagram and Twitter. Amazing. And yeah, of course, if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, dear listeners, you can follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. You can email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com and stay tuned for our Patreon information. Thanks, guys. <laughs>